So we're going to be looking at the book of Colossians, which is in the New Testament. It's one of the, the, the letters that Paul the Apostle writes. Paul is a Gentile, or he's a, he's a Reformed uh, uh, Jew. He gets saved in, in a very unique way. The 12 apostles, uh, they followed Jesus in his life and ministry, but Paul was, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He, he really was uh, against Jesus until Jesus intervened in his life transformed his life, and he became really the apostle to the Gentiles. And so we've got a ton of letters from Paul. He writes to the Romans. He writes to the Corinthians. He writes to the church in Ephesus, the church in Philippi. And here we see he's writing to this this kind of small church in uh, Colossae. And before we get into the word, I wanted just by way of, of education, because I make no assumptions that we really do much with these Bibles, right? So part of my vendetta is to get us to understand what these Bibles look like and how to use them. I've got, it's a reference Bible. I don't know if you can see, it's got two columns. It's got a bunch of weird stuff in the middle. Um, If not, you can look at the the video after the service and you can see. But at the beginning of the book of Colossians right here, you can see that there's this blurb, right? And and it doesn't have a number, there are no verses. And in fact, it says, introduction, Paul wrote to the church at Colossae to fortify it against false teachers who might try to impose strict rules about eating and drinking and religious festivals, and it goes on. This is a helpful introduction, and my encouragement to you is part of the reason you might not appreciate reading the Bible is because you have no idea what they're talking about, and that's okay, right? We all start from somewhere, so if that's you... My encouragement is get a good Bible that has these introductions because once you've read this once or twice, and we're going to be going through this book for a number of weeks, uh, it, you'll begin to understand the circumstances around this book and why, why it was written. And that will help you to appreciate and understand how this now applies to your own life. You know, sometimes we approach the Bible like it's this mystical, um, almost like it's a magic wand, and we're just like, give me something good. For the Lord has, nope, let's try again. Okay, give me something. And we, we treat it like some sort of magical talisman that, that's going to bless our life. But it's a book written by humans, certainly also written by God, but written by humans. And so we have to use normal, regular uh, tools of understanding to understand what's going on and how to apply it to our lives. Does that make sense so far? Some of you have just fallen asleep, and that's okay. Um. I won't do this every week, but I think it's really important that we begin to understand what's going on, because what Paul writes to the Colossians is not removed from how we apply it to our own lives. Now, you and I, we don't live you know, near the Mediterranean Sea. We're not you know, first century believers, but we do face some of the challenges that, that the, these believers faced. You see, they, they were struggling with, with trying to, to work out their faith in a culture and a circumstance and a situation where there are many things that they could believe and many things they could ultimately kind of work into their own faith. And this was not, this was not good supplement, like I'm going to take something from Genesis and I'm going to take some things from, from uh, Psalms or Deuteronomy and, and I'm going to begin to systematize the Christian faith. No, they were beginning to take things from other religions, other belief systems and, and, and have this kind of syncretistic view of of, of life. And the problem with that is, is if you've got a car and you try to use parts from a boat, 
the car is not going to work the way it's supposed to. And, and if you're a believer that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father, no one finds salvation apart from him, then for you to begin to adopt other belief systems and, and kind of draw them in, it, it's a direct attack, and it, and it undermines, really, the gospel that, that has been established and given in the Bible. And so Paul is writing to these believers to remind them that Jesus, it's about Jesus. It's not about this, it's not about that, it's not about, you know, um, salvation doesn't come from believing in Jesus and doing these 10 things. It, it comes from believing in Jesus and trusting in his finished works. It, it, it isn't believing in Jesus and, and, and also connecting with these other spiritual beings. You know, don't kid yourself, that we're going to hear that the Colossians, they, they're interested in, in the worship of angels, and, and you might think to yourself, well, that, that's, that's an, an antique, primitive idea, but, but you can go to Barnes & Noble, and you can see that there is a great deal of interest in all that is spiritual, but not necessarily Christian. This is immensely applicable to your life. Because we are in a culture which invites us to believe all things and everything. And, and oftentimes shames us for not. And so here we are in Colossians and Paul is writing to this church to encourage them to fortify their faith. To reestablish their understanding of the supremacy of Jesus Christ. I, I, loved, I loved our worship time because there was just so... So much of it was, was just very directly hailing Christ's greatness. You know, Jesus is king. In Ephesians, this is one of the texts that I've memorized a long time ago, and it's been impactful in my life. It says that, that, uh, that Jesus is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. And Paul is laboring to say that Jesus is above every power, rule, authority. Think of some sort of power structure. Think of some sort of political power. Think of some sort of spiritual power. Think of some sort of power dynamic. All of those things, Christ is above it all. And, and our worship, what we were invited to today into was, was jumping into this stream of recognizing what is true, that God is great. God is great. And we're going to see in this text in this book of Colossians, that God is great, that Jesus is great. So, again, if you're new with us, we have this, this tradition of standing together as we read the Word of God together. So I invite you to stand. If you're online, I'd still invite you to stand. And we're going to read aloud Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. If you don't have your Bible, um, that's okay. It's going to be on screen. I'm reading from the ESV, so it may be different from your version. But uh, we're going to read this together, and then we're going to jump in. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. That's, we'll do that again. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing. Just as you learned, it is, 
It also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. This is the word of the Lord to us. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you are at work. I thank you, God, that you are at work. And Holy Spirit, we invite you right now to be with us. Would you quicken our hearts and our minds to receive the truth of your scriptures, to believe by faith uh, in the promises of your gospel, and then to live in light of that. God, I pray that we'd be shaped and formed by this belief that Jesus is great, that he is good, that he is God, that he has secured our salvation by his suffering on the cross, his death, and his resurrection. God, would you make us a people who exude this understanding that that you are great. Not that we are great, but that you are great. Holy Spirit, we ask you to move to minister. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So in these first eight verses, we, we see Paul introduce himself to this church and really begin to express that there's a prayer that he's been praying for them. And, and if you look in the original language, it's all one sentence. So it's a whole lot of, of uh, clauses that he ties together to this main point, we always thank God. Sorry, verses one and two are not connected to the sentence, verse three and following are. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ. You see, Paul was writing to this church, and he, he's identifying himself as an apostle, as carrying authority. He does this in most of his letters, identifies himself as an, as an apostle because uh, that's what gives him the apostolic authority to, to call them to obedience. This was a church that he had not necessarily personally uh, uh, visited. If you, were, you don't have to go there now, but if you write down chapter 2, verse 1, he says, I, I want you to know how great a how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. In other words, he says, I'm writing to you, but I recognize that I've not met with you, but here are my credentials. This is why you ought to listen to me. Not because I'm awesome, not necessarily because I have, uh, I, I'm astute or I've, I've got a lot of great background, but because I am an apostle, I'm a messenger, and, uh, a, a messenger who's been signed, uh, assigned by God to, to bring you the gospel. He's been authorized by God. Uh, that's why he says, by the will of God, uh, to, to bring them the gospel message. And he says, and Timothy, our brother, he's writing in concert with Timothy. We believe he's in prison, probably, maybe in, um, and he writes to the saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ at Colossae. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Now, this is a common, if you ever read Paul, this is a common introduction, grace to you and peace. But it's always worth reminding yourself that he says this, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Grace and peace don't come from anyone except for God our Father. Grace and peace don't come from anyone but God our Father. If you find yourself struggling for peace, fighting with anxiety, struggling for for a sense of security and stability, struggling to find... uh, traction in your life, perhaps you've been looking in the wrong places. And I would, I would just encourage you to, to meditate on this simple phrase, grace to you and peace from 
God our Father. Now, the, the main point of what Paul is telling us in, in verses 3, and I'm going to really focus on verses 3 through 5. The main point that he's going to say is, thank God. I thank God. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. So you have this picture of Paul in prison thinking about the Colossians and saying, God, I thank you for them. God, I thank you for what you're doing among them. God, I thank you for your faithfulness to them. He's thanking God. And why does he thank God? Well, this is where it gets weird. He thanks God for their faith and for their love and for their hope. He thanks God for their faith, for for the faith of the Colossians, for the love of the Colossians and for their hope. Now, I I was raised in... I lived my first formative years of life in, in a, a small town of Hartford, Alabama. You wouldn't necessarily know that from my accent, but believe me, I, between the ages of, of one to six, it was different. I mean, I still have somewhat of a southern accent. I love to employ y'all. It's, it's a great word. It works. Um, but I was, I was a southern boy. And... As a southern boy, I was taught to say please and thank you, uh, you know, with, with the, the imposition that there would be physical harm ha- were I not to. You say please and you say thank you. But, but what's interesting about saying please and thank you is that you say please to the person that you're speaking with, the person that you're asking, you know, please may I have that donut. And then you say what? You say thank you once you've received that delicious donut. You say please and you say thank you, but you say it to the person that you're speaking to. But here we have Paul and he's saying, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you since we heard of your faith. Now, what I would think is that if it's your faith, then I ought to thank you for believing. If it's your love, then I ought to thank you for loving. If it's your hope, then I ought to thank you for being hopeful for holding on to the hope. But he doesn't do that. He says, we always thank who? God. It's an unusual thing that Paul thanks God for the faith of the Colossians. Uh, And for many of us, the fact that we trust Jesus is something we take personal pride in. You know, I made the decision. I trusted in God. But did you know that even having an inkling of faith is an indication that God is at work in your life. In Ephesians, uh, a letter that's actually pretty similar to this one, Ephesians chapter 2, Paul goes at, to some length to talk about this, this idea of faith. And, and he says in, in chapter 2, verse 1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Talking about our position as sinners apart from God prior to salvation. We were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, um, among whom, those, those sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, carrying out the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, 
like the rest of mankind. He's not talking about some really, really bad hooligans. He's not talking about some, some uh, prison inmates who have done the worst of the worst things. He's writing to Christians in Ephesus. And he's saying, guys, this, is, this was our situation. But he, then he says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, what? He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him so that in the coming ages he might be able to show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us. And then he says, in case you're confused, here's what I mean. For, verse 8, by grace you have been saved through faith. And this gift of salvation, grace through faith, this is, not, it is a gift of God. Uh, this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. And then he goes on and he says, for in fact, you're not working things. You are God's workmanship. God is working things. The Colossians had faith, and that was an indication that God was at work. Family, if there's any inkling of faith in your life, be encouraged that God is at work. Some of you have come today and you're distressed, you're discouraged, you're frustrated with your life. You, you, you feel like it's a treadmill that just keeps getting faster and you're losing ground. And what I would say to you is that if you have any inkling of trust in God, God is still at work. God is still at work. And, and to, to, to get to the punchline before the end, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, Paul says this, I am sure of this, that he who began a good what work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. If God is at work, he's going to finish his work. If you have faith, then God is at work. And if God is at work, he's going to finish his work. Praise God. I thank God that my faith is not strictly dependent upon me. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't have to believe. God certainly calls us to believe. The picture I like to think of when I think of this situation is, is uh, you, you live life with sunglasses on that block out light and color. And there's a moment at which God says, let me help you. You're in a field, it's springtime, we were driving down Route 7 from Winchester on our way here, and I just got excited about what the spring is going to look like. But imagine it's springtime, you've got sunglasses on, you've had them for the, your entirety of your life, and, and the colors are drab and dark, and your existence is drab and dark, and in a moment, Jesus just comes and he, and he takes the glasses off, and you see life in full color. That's faith. Now, certainly, you're the one who's seeing. You absolutely are exercising your ability to see, but God has done something decisively in your life so that now you can appreciate what once you could not appreciate. We thank God because of the faith that we see in you. I thank God because of the faith I see in you. And God's work is not only evidenced in their faith, it's also seen in their love for one another. I think this one's a bit more easy to see. He says this, we, we, we thank God when we pray for you, dot, 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 since we heard of your faith and of the love that you have for all the saints. 
you know this is a miracle of God and that God is at work because you've met other church people. I had one honest person laugh. The rest of you are like, I know, I love everyone, it's cool. It, it's okay. can, can we just admit that, that there are people in the church who may have hurt your feelings? Now, I'm not asking you to go and try and like have a moment with them after service. Like, Pastor already talked about this and part of me loving you is telling you that you're a jerk. Don't do that. <laughs> that's, that's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that, that I am a sinner saved by grace, but a sinner nevertheless, there are edges in me, there are areas of impatience in me, of insecurity in me, and when that rubs up against other people with similar insecurities, sparks can fly. You know what the world does when when that happens, or when there's something that, that offends a person? Canceled. I don't, need to, I don't need to deal with this thing when that thing is a person. The, the challenge is God is establishing a people, and it's not based on affinity. Can I say that? God is establishing a people. Here at Grace Covenant Church Sterling, God is establishing a people, and it's not based on affinity. Some of you like to golf. I couldn't care less about golf. I could care, I could care more. Like I care about you and I, I enjoy learning about the things that you enjoy, but you're not going to find me at six in the morning on, on a Saturday hitting the links. I'm just, not, no, because God made us for rest and I don't find golf restful. Nevertheless, here we are united. Here we are brought together. There, to, to put more of an edge on it, there are Democrats and Republicans and Libertarians and I don't want to be labeled because whatever in this room right now. And, and we all know that, that we have very strong opinions, especially in this, in this political climate, about how this nation ought to run. And, and yet God calls us to what? Love one another. And if you're, if you're watching any news channel, you see that that's a really hard thing. Sometimes it's hard because we're really terrible sinners and arrogant in our perspective, and sometimes it's because the people around us are really arrogant sinners and, and really uh, dogmatic in their perspectives. And yet he says, and so he says here, I, I know that God's at work, guys, because you guys love one another. That, that's a work of God. And so family, I, I don't want to discourage you because I think that I've painted a picture of like, wow, there are a lot of challenges here. But the fact that you're here means that God is at work. The fact that there's a, there's a level of, of, of willingness to interact with people who are different than you, who eat different food than you, who, are, who have different backgrounds, who like different music, who have different political persuasions than you, is an indication that God is at work. Because we are united around this idea that God is good and holy, that he demands a response from sinners. He provided a way through his son, Jesus Christ. Paul, he uses this language of, of calling us in Christ. 
Theologians call it this doctrine of the union with Christ, that, that there's this spiritual connection, union with Christ, where we are identified with him. And it's not just this vertical identification, but it's a horizontal identification. You are united to Christ. I am united to Christ. Together we are united to Christ. And if Christ was talking to Christ, he would love Christ. He wouldn't, there wouldn't be a fight or, a, or, or an argument or a, an irreconcilable disagreement. He says, I thank God for your love for one another. Certainly our love for the world is important, but it's interesting that Paul and Jesus both say this, they will know you're my disciples by what your love for what one another. Certainly family, we need to love the world and we need to be a church that loves the world. But I think that we need to cultivate that love for the world first and foremost by being willing to be in relationship with one another and loving one another. Practically speaking, because that's what matters, you know, what I don't want is for us to be like, yes, let's love one another. And then you leave and go to, you know, the Olive Garden and you see someone from church and you're just like, oh, I want to talk to them. We just had church and I'm trying to have my alone time now, you know. <laughs> Not saying that any of you have done that. I may have. <laughs> but but that's, that's where it, who are you going to love today? Who are you going to love today? And, and to put it in a positive way, can I encourage you that any effort that you make toward loving people genuinely is empowered by God himself? The God who spun the universe into existence and said, let there be light and all of a sudden physics, right? That God is saying, if, if you will love these people, I'm at work. I'm at work. If you will forgive that person who offended you, you know, in the parking lot, and then now you have to see each other, or, you know, you, you saw at the grocery store, and then you were like, I don't like that person. Then you're like, oh, they go to Grace Coming to Church, too. Okay. <laughs> you know, one of the, um, uh, I, I was a youth pastor in Chantilly for a little while, and I had a great team, and one of the members of my team who I met, I, I met him by um, bumping into his car in the parking lot. I was on staff as a pastor and like backed into his car and uh, he was super gracious, actually ended up to go and, and do ministry himself and, and I think it was a clear indication that God was at work because that doesn't happen at work, right? You don't just bump into someone and you're like, oh, you're the CEO, let's be friends. God is at work and it's evidenced by their love and family. God is at work here. And it's evidenced by your love for one another. And if you don't see that, then why don't you be the person who loves? Be the person who loves and trust that God will come alongside that. So we talked about how Paul's thanking God for their faith. He's thanking God for their, hope, their love. And now he's thanking God for their hope. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, verse 5, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this hope you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. You've heard of this hope. You know about this hope. It's the hope that you heard about in the gospel. 
What is Paul talking about here? He's talking about a hope laid up for us in heaven. You see, in the gospel, in the good news about Jesus Christ, you know, let's, let's pretend we, no one knows what we're talking about. We find ourselves, the bad news is that you and I, because of uh, Adam and Eve and their foolishness, and because of our own decisions and our own foolishness, we find ourselves to be what the Bible calls sinners, criminals, rebels, people who deserve punishment because of our bad behavior. And, and lest you think that your bad behavior is better than my bad behavior, all of our bad behavior is especially bad because it's against a good and holy and righteous God. You know, you're not just offending me, some guy on the street, and you're not just offending the governor, you're not just offending um, the, the president, you're offending the ruler of all things. And so there's, there's a proportional punishment that is due to each of us. Now, the gospel, the good news is that that punishment can be taken care of and has been taken care of by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God, God himself who took our punishment so that we might be able to take his righteousness. That's the good news. And part of that good news is this hope that one day, when we all die, which we will, we will see God. And it will not be a moment of, oh no, I've been caught. Right? Anyone who's got children or has been a child or has babysat knows that facial expression. Oh no. You know, like you're walking in the room and little little Billy's over here. I won't go too far for the sake of the A B team, but they're they're doing something and they 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 hear you and they're like, ah! You're like, what are you doing? I nothing. There are no forks here. The this is the wall I they're caught. That's not us by the grace of God. By the grace of God, we will be able to unashamedly look at God and say, even though I am a criminal, I stand here because of my faith in Jesus Christ. At which point God will say, come on in. That's our hope laid up for us in heaven. And it's the hope which we heard of in the gospel. Let me, I, I want to read to you Romans chapter 8. Not all of Romans chapter 8, although you should read Romans chapter 8 because, whoa. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 31 and going through verse 39. Romans is uh, the fifth book of the Bible, uh, the New Testament. It's to the left if you've got your Bible. Romans chapter 8, verse 31 through 39. Paul's talking and he says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Right, that's a rhetorical question. All the middle schoolers would answer, nobody. He who did not spare his own son, but gave himself up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things, all things in order that we might walk in this salvation? Verse 33, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Middle schoolers, nobody. It is God who justifies. I keep saying that because as a youth pastor, middle schoolers just did not get rhetorical questions. Like they didn't, no, just be, yeah, I know you know the answer. Anyways, verse 34, who is to condemn? Nobody. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing. There we go. Yeah, y'all can, 
shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or, or the, the price of gasoline or um, what's going on in, in Europe or, you know, your annoying coworkers or that terrible boss that you have or your, your, your spouse who just isn't listening to you. Shall these things tre- uh, separate us from, from Christ as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long and we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But verse 37, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For, why are we more than conquerors? For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, nothing in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is our hope. And and I want you to listen to this part in verse 7. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors, through him who loved us. Now, that whole more than conquerors thing, I feel like I've seen that on jerseys and like mugs. Like, well, we're more than conquerors. We're, we win when we, like we crush when we win. Like, we're not just conquerors, we, we destroy. And that sounds cool, but that's not what he's saying, right? He's not saying we're more than conquerors because like it's 80 and zero and we're just dunking on you all day long. No, he's saying that when we, lose, we win, right? How can you be more than a conqueror if you, you win and you win and you win and that's why you're called a conqueror? You can be called a conqueror because more than a conqueror because when you lose, you win. How infuriating would that be, right? If there was a war going on and there was a battle and the person, this team, they, they lost and this team won but all of a sudden it's like switched around and now they're the winners and you're like, no, we won. Yeah, but we lost so we win. You're like, that's bad logic. But, it, but in the kingdom of God, when you face trials and tribulation and pain and suffering and loss and hurt and, and betrayal, when you lose, by the grace of God, through his sovereign work in your life, and because of our ultimate promise of hope laid up for us in heaven, we win. We're more than conquerors because when we lose, we win. Maybe you're in a losing battle right now. Maybe you're in a losing moment right now, legitimately losing, losing in your health, losing in relationships, losing in your financing, losing in, in your battle. You can be encouraged, not that if you just, if you just work harder and just you know, pull yourself up and you know, eat your frogs in the morning and, and you're more productive, more assertive, a better version of yourself. No, 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 no. You trust in God through those moments. You're honest about it, God, I'm losing. I am, I'm losing God. But then you remember that if I'm losing and I have faith in God, God's at work. Don't hear me wrong. What I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that if we're running headlong into sin, that we're good to go and God's just gonna be cool with that. But I am saying that if there are difficulties in your life, if there are struggles in your life, if there's pain in your life, if there are things that call into question the goodness of God, those circumstances are, are a direct indication that God, God is at work. God is at work. You know, I'm, I'm reminded of, of 
a lot of the church, as we have looked at and reflected on the gospel, we've done so in, not in periods of prosperity, but periods of, of severe persecution. And you had, you had people who, you know, there's these three guys called the Oxford Martyrs who, um, they were Protestant believers and they, they were martyred under the, the ruler of Mary Tudor, Mary, Bloody Mary. And, and one of the guys, he, they, they said, you need to recant. You need to stop believing in this and believe in, you know, stop believing in justification by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. Stop believing in that and come back to, to what we want to teach. And he recants. He actually, he turns away from the gospel as we understand it. And, but then he's still punished. And, and as he's as he's being martyred, he, he praises and he worships God. And he basically recants his recantation. And in a moment like that, he's losing. Right? There's no sort of like, well, around the corner after I burn, you know, they'll graft some skin from my legs and I'll be cool. No, he's, he's dying. And, and um, you know, there's legend that like he puts his hand in to be burned first because it was the hand that signed his recant you know, signed his letter recanting. So he's like, this is going to go first. Where is that guy's hope? Right, if, if you're in, in, I will say this, if you're in it for like ease here and now, right, if, if you're not willing to wait to the end for the victory, you're, you might be disappointed. Because this hope, what does Paul say? It's the hope that is laid up for us in heaven. Not at the Ferrari dealership, right? It's not laid up for us at, in Belmont Country Club. This is not a hope laid up for us um, at that job you want. This is not a hope laid up for you, you know, in that person that you know, I, if I just marry this person, everything's going to be okay. You know, this is not a hope laid up for you in, in, if I could just say what I need to say to these people who are mean, then everything's going to be okay. No, this is a hope laid up for us in heaven. And it's in light of that that Paul can say, if God is for us, who can be against us? You know, Jesus, he's, he's doing okay right now, right? He's in heaven. He's at the right hand of the Father. He's, he's living. But in order to get there, what happened? He died on the cross in a pretty horrible way. So he, he, he lost, but he lost in order that he might win, right? The writer of Hebrews says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. For the, for the reality that I'm going to be the instrument through which we, we bring all these people into our family. I'm going to be the means by which we, we bring redemption and forgiveness and life and joy and, and praise and worship and a party at the end of all times. I'm going to be the way that happens. And in light of that joy that he was, he was considering, he was willing to lose. And so if you're in a, minute, if you're in a moment of losing, if you're in a moment of, of pain, of suffering, of sorrow, and you're being tempted to say, God, you aren't good, you, you aren't faithful, you aren't helping me, my encouragement to you is to say, look at your hope laid up for you in heaven. This is a hope which God establishes through his son. 
And, and here's what's interesting. And as we, as we come to a close, he says this. We always thank God. Why? Because we heard of your faith and of your love. And then he doesn't say, and your hope. Right? He doesn't say, we thank God because of your faith and your hope and your love. Although that would have been, you know, nice and literary and triads and it's good. No, he says, we, we thank God because of your, your, your faith and your love because of your hope. You see, the hope that they saw, the hope that they heard of in the gospel, the hope laid up for them in, in heaven, that was the thing that ultimately gave rise to, to greater faith and greater love. And the reason I say this, family, is because, and I've been meditating on this idea of hope for a while, is that there is a great deal of hope that God has for us, and you may not be succeeding, not because you need to work harder or you need to try harder or believe more, but because you have not tapped into the hope that is really offered to you. It, if, it's, it's the hope of resurrection life. It's the, the hope of being reunited with a God who loves us that allows someone to go to the, to the stake and be, be burned. It's the, the hope that God is doing something, the hope that God is at work that allows you to look at that person who said something unkind to you and say, you know what, I forgive you. It's the hope that God has for you that allows you to sacrifice your time and your energy and, and your, your patience and go and serve in Kid Builders. To be insulted by a seven-year-old who didn't say please and thank you. I'm not pointing, I mean, hypothetically, not in this church. It's, it's hope that gives rise to faith and love. It's hope that gives rise to these things. And perhaps if you're struggling with the love piece or you're struggling with the faith piece, what you need to do is not just try to, oh, I'm going to love these people, ah, Right? You've met those people who are like trying to be nice and they're like, how are you? And you're like, I, I'm, I'm good. Why are you asking? I just, I love you. Okay. Love me from afar, please. Right? It, it, you, you, we know this. We can do things that are loving, but, but conjuring up those emotions, it's not something we can do. We, we can... We can try and have faith in God, but sometimes we, we end up trying to have faith in faith and it gets to be this weird like thing when what we need to do is to look at the object of our faith, Christ resurrected, reigning in, in heaven, and rem remember that I'm, I'm going to see your face, God. You know, when we were worshiping, to, when we were worshiping, um, I just was so, I love it when we worship God. I'm encouraged when we you know, say, God, you helped me, you saved me, you did these things. God, I'm thankful for, you know, you, you paid my bills, you, you, you did these things. But there's something just awesome when we just declare that regardless of what you did or are doing, God, you are good and you are God. And I think that that's because that is the ultimate reality. Right, my life and my reality and my problems and my situations, they sit on an ultimate reality. And when we can just tap into this ultimate reality that God is good and God is great, we're tapping into the deepest purposes for which we were created.
in your parenting, as you parent and you, you deal with your kids, there are moments where you tap in and you just feel a sense of, of love that flows and you realize this reflects the nature and character of who God is. And there's just a worship that comes up and you're like, God, you're awesome. When you look at your spouse and you realize that they're, they're committed to you at a level that they've seen the things, that they've heard the things that, that you say and do and come out of your face and body and, and they still love you, and you begin to realize that, man, God is good. He is awesome. We have a great hope, family. My hope is, <laughs> my desire is that as we go through this book, we will begin to meditate on the hope that we have. And like the Colossians, and we'll see that, that they're bearing fruit and growing, that love will rise that hope will rise, that faith will rise, that we'll begin to look at other people and say, you know what, I wanna be in a small group. I wanna commit myself to people. I wanna be in this church. I wanna serve on the, on the teams. Not because that's what Pastor Eddie tells me to do, but because I have a hope, I have a faith, I have a love. You may have situations, and we're gonna talk about those other situations and challenges and they, they exist, but family, if you are in Christ, if you trust him, you have hope. What can separate for you from the love of God? Nothing. What can separate you from the love of God? Nothing. You have hope because God, God is at work. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you. I thank you, God because of the faith I see in this house. The faith I see among the people here. God, I thank you because I see the love that's being expressed, the, the self-sacrifice, the willingness to, to give, to forgive, to bend, to be flexible for the sake of others in this church. God, I thank you because you are at work. And I get, God, I thank you for the hope that we all have, the hope that we're looking toward, that, that whatever may come here and now, we have an unassailable, undefeatable, all-conquering hope in our redemption and reuniting with you, our Savior and King and Lord. I pray that you would impress upon us just how much hope we have. And I pray that faith would rise and love would rise in our lives and that you would make Grace Covenant Church sterling, a church that is marked by your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Love you, family.